Good morning and a very warm welcome to the first The New PL podcast for 2022. I hope you've all had a great Christmas break and New Year with your families if you celebrated it. And I hope you're ready to take on 2022 with passion and power. I'm Paul, host of the New PL podcast, as you know, and founder of the New PL Brand Purpose Institute, where we work with business leaders and employees and entrepreneurs just like you and empower them to build brands with purpose on purpose. And we do this through an extensive range of workshops and consultancy and strategic counsel. So if you'd like to discuss how to build your brand with purpose on purpose, then please don't hesitate to get in touch. We believe business needs a new PL, one that is focused as much on principles of leadership as it is on profit and loss. Because we know if your principles are right and aligned with your purpose, and your leadership has a clear vision and focus and strength and empathy, then your business will be in profit and not loss in so many ways. This week's guest on the new PL is the legendary Dove Barron, one of the world's foremost conscious leadership experts. Dove is known as the actualizer, and he is considered to be the leading authority on actualized leadership, which is defined as getting the results you set out to achieve in the most meaningful manner. Dove guides some of the world's top business leaders on how to recognize and nurture the top talent hidden within their organizations, to help them build powerful corporate cultures and accelerate their own authentic leadership skill set. Because Dove believes that the world needs more leaders committed to living their purpose, standing in their truth, and empowering others to find their fire and to do the same. As a respected and sought after leadership speaker, Dove has spoken on stages across the globe including the United Nations, the World Management Forum, the New York National Speakers Association, and the Servant Leader Institute. He is also a best-selling author, popular media commentator, and podcast host of the number one Fortune 500 podcast, Leadership and Loyalty. And finally, he's also been ranked as a top 100 leadership speaker by Inc. Magazine and a top 30 global leadership guru. So Dove, a very, very warm welcome to the new PL. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. My absolute pleasure, mate. I'm looking forward to serving you and your audience. Awesome. Um, perhaps we can start the conversation for those who may not be familiar with your work, if you can give them a bit of an overview as to what you do and who you do it for. <laughs> for those who may not be familiar, you mean everybody. <laughs> You know, I mean, we're all famous in our own underpants, right? We're all famous <laughs> in our own eyes. But, you know, of course, nobody's ever heard of me. Um, I'm, so I, despite that, um, I am an international speaker. I speak around the world. I've spoken for the UN. I've spoken in Iran. I've spoken all across the US, Australia, Canada, etc. Um, I speak on leadership, but specifically from the point of what's called emotional source code, understanding what drives human beings and how we are driven. Uh, my lifelong quest has been to understand why people do what they do that doesn't make sense. Uh, oftentimes, even to themselves, like, you know, they'll look back a year later and go, why did I do that? So my job is to find the emotional source code of uh, individuals, the leaders I work with who are often athletes, entertainers, world leaders, icons, etc. Um, but also of companies and organizations because they have their own emotional source code and even countries. So countries have their own emotional source code. And those who understand it, um, who may be less than premium in their how they're looking at things, they may have some a little bit ulterior motive. 
uh, can use that to manipulate people in a very uh, destructive way, as we saw on January 6th in uh, the United States. So that's an example of tapping source code, having people do things that they might look back later and go, why did I do that? So uncovering or discovering your emotional source code, either working with mm -hmm. yourself or, or as an individual requires, I would imagine, a great deal of genuine and honest self-awareness uh, first, because you have to tap in with genuine authenticity into the inside of you to understand why you do what you do. How do you, what's the process for that, either with you working with people or people individually, what's the process for starting down the route of understanding and discovering your emotional source code? Well, it's right there over my shoulder, curiosity. Mm -hmm. right? You've got to start with curiosity. And when I, and I want to make a distinction so people understand, because I didn't for many, many years. And that is that curiosity is not about questions. We, we think of it as questions, but it's not. Questions are about getting answers, and the answers give us a right, wrong, yes, no, right, left, right. And, and they tend to make somebody right or somebody wrong. Curiosity, on the other hand, is a deepening understanding. That's what we want to do. We want to deepen the understanding of something. So if I get that I'm motivated by X, I want to know why am I motivated by X? Well, if that's why, what drove that? And mm -hmm. if, that, if that was driven from there, well, how did that come about? So it's this deepening level of understanding. So where we have to start is, you know, and I want to just help everybody to get a start on this because it, it can have, it has a great deal of depth to it. But where you can start is this. Let me ask you to ask this one question. You don't have to answer it right now, but I want you to ponder it. I want you to think about it. When you write mm -hmm. it down, the question. And the question is this. What did you need as a child that you couldn't get or couldn't get enough of? Mm -hmm. What did you need as a child that you couldn't get or couldn't get enough of? So let me give you a quick example. I was working with um, a chief medical officer out of the UK and um, of a rather large um, medical technology organization. And he basically said to me, you know, I, I think this is nonsense. I'm not doing this. And, you know, it was fully resistant. Now he's actually one of my biggest fans, which is wonderful. Um, and he, you know, and he said, well, I guess comfort. I needed, uh, I needed like a connection to my dad. And I said, okay, cool. That's fine. And he, and, and then he stops and he goes, no, 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 I didn't. And I go, oh, all right. I thought you did. And he goes, nope. He goes, I had it. I said, oh, good. That's great. Tell me how. He goes, we went fishing. And I said, oh, how often? And he said, twice. Mm -hmm. And I said, remember, the question was, what did you need that you couldn't get or couldn't get enough of? Do you think twice was enough? Mm. And at that point, he had to go, no. Okay, that's what you needed. So that connection to that person. So what are you looking for in that? It's not just a connection to dad. That is the surface. That's the what I call the label on the box. But when you mm -hmm. open the box, what's inside? That's the deepening curiosity. So what was I really looking for? What was I in need of there? Because in fact, once you get to your source code, you discover what is driving you at an unconscious level. And sometimes that has very dark outcomes and sometimes it has very great outcomes. So another quick example is another one of my clients years ago, I was working with him, he's like, very successful, does incredible things. And he says, how come I'm so useless at relationships? He goes, how come I, I just picked these people who were just awful? He goes, they're not at first, but then they are, you know, and then we got down to it and we walked to, into his source code and you know what he was looking for? He was looking for what he called angry eyes. 
Right. And I said, angry eyes, describe that. He goes, yeah, I just, he says, I find them sexy. And we discovered this because him and I were out somewhere and we were in a club and he was hitting on this woman who was not interested in him. And there was another lady who was hitting on him who was beautiful. And she was, she looked like she was kind, you know, and this other, he was pursuing this other woman. And I said, what is it? He goes, it's her angry eyes. Guess where he learned that mm -hmm. in his childhood. So he was always pursuing his mother's affections and people go, well, is this psychotherapy? No, it's not. It's the primary drivers of individuals. So yes, there's a psychological piece to it, of course, but it changes your neural pathways. So you start pursuing things you don't want. You start pursuing things you don't want. You, you go, oh, there's a business here, X, and there's a business here, Y. I'm going to pursue X. Now, mm. everybody around you is going, well, that's going off the edge of a cliff. And you're going, no, no, this one will fly. And it was like, really? With weight side to its ankles? Okay, let's see how that goes. We all know. And then they go, and this is the thing. When we do it, when we run our source code and we do it, we look back and we go, yeah, you know what? All the signs were there. So again, it's what we do that doesn't make sense to others, but makes perfect sense to us at the time. But when we move into the rational mind again, when we move to the prefrontal cortex, the executive thinking, we go, I don't know why I did that. It's that internal sabotage process. So when we understand our emotional source code and when we tap into that, how do we then harness it in a positive way to create some sort of continuity and movement in a positive sense moving forward? How, rather than just dipping in in that moment, how do we use it in a positive sense to form the basis of ourselves moving forward? So you look at what it is. So, you know, we've got to the base of it. And then we look at how does it express and it expresses always, it always expresses in having a need met. That's the basis of it, having a need met. What is the need it's trying to meet? And then the question becomes, how can I meet that need in a healthy way and mm -hmm. acknowledge that, recognize that, and become conscious of that so that I build up the neural pathways? Because neurons that fire together wire together. So the neurons that are fired together all the time is, I need to get this need met. How do I get it met? Oh, I pursue women with angry eyes. Okay, or I right, got into that business that I know is going to go down the toilet, right? So because that process inside of your um, emotional source code is there to give you something. And sometimes the thing it's giving you is validation of a crappy belief. Mm -hmm. So once you go, well, okay, if that's the need I'm trying to get met, how can I meet that in a, consciously now? How can I meet that in a healthy way? And you start building these steps. The problem is we don't build them, we don't recognize them, we don't validate them. So here's the thing, success is built on success. What do I mean by that? People talk a lot about, you know, gotta embrace failure. Okay, I understand that, nothing wrong with that, that's good. But success is built on success, meaning I have to recognize the success I've had in the direction I want, that's the in parentheses, mm -hmm. in the direction I want and validate that because we only remember that which has an emotional impact. You know this, you went to school, I went to school, yeah. and I had a terror, I, I hated science, hated science. And then about, I think it was about 13, I got a great science teacher and I love science. What's mm. the difference? It was still science. Yes. It was the teacher who made it fun and I had an emotional connection and therefore I remembered. So we're always pursuing the emotional connection. And as much as we like to think of ourselves as rational, 
We're not. We're first and foremost emotional. That's not my opinion. That's neuroscience. That's biology. That's neuro, uh, neuropsychology. It's all of those things connected. We are first and foremost emotional beings. When we get that, we can be empowered by it. So when we think about hugely successful business people, and you deal with a lot of them, and sports people and so on, there's often a, a common perception that these people have effectively master their minds to get to the top of their field and they've managed to conquer their inner doubts and limiting beliefs however the more i speak to successful people on the new pnl the more i realize that those limiting beliefs really diminish it's just a constant discipline these people have to to master the moment rather than master their minds if you like so i wonder what your view on that is, whether we can master our minds or whether we can only master a series of individual sequential moments in that moment. So that's, that, that's a very, that's a brilliant insight, Paul. So that is exactly what happens is, is the, well, the best example is this. Uh, if you, if I ask you to think about, generally speaking, who was the greatest golfer in our, in our lifetime, who is it? Tiger Woods, I would say. Right. Tiger Woods. We, everybody says Tiger Woods, right? Tiger Woods. <clears throat> okay. So the first question is how many coaches did Tiger Woods have? If he's yes. the best in the world, how many did he have? He had five. Right. At his peak, he had five. So why does the best in the world have five coaches who he's obviously better than or else they'd be beating him? Mm -hmm. Because we, none of us are objective in our subjective reality. We need yeah. somebody on the outside. So that's number one. But here's the key point. How many coaches did he have in, in relationships? about how to have relationships? Uh, I, the answer I would is, assume none. <laughs> the answer would be a big fat hole in the donut. How do we know? Well, he was bonking everything in sight and his, his missus sued him for a very lot of money and he lost a billion dollar uh, advertising deal because of his philandering, because he was terrible at relationships. He learned relationships from his father who he also learned golf from. And his dad was great at golf, but terrible at relationships. So we just mimic. So when we become good at something, we have decided to focus in on that. And by the way, when I do the work with those people, what I know, always discover is that the reason they are where they are and they're champions or whatever it might be, or the gold medalist or whatever it might be, is source code. When I get to this, source code, it's like, oh, this was a great way to meet that need. Yes. But there's a counter because you've not looked at the source code. Now there's a counter. So you're a gold medalist swimmer and you are a douchebag husband or a douchebag wife. And, you know, you're, you're, you're a terrible parent or you, you destroyed your business. You got all that money and now you destroyed it all because you, you couldn't hold that. Couldn't hold the two at once. So you're absolutely right. It's about a focus, which is great. It's fine. You get the accolades, but you don't get the fulfillment. You don't get the connection to yourself. And you don't get the wholeness, which is what we re we're all pursuing. Yeah. So one area that really fascinated me when I did the, the research in preparation for this is you talked about how our psychology, particularly as a child, becomes our physiology. And you use the example yeah. of the way we're encouraged to think and act as children subsequently manifesting itself in the resting position of our face. So yeah. it would be warm and smiley or aggressive and, and angry, unhappy. And you suggested that we need to try and look beyond someone's psychological history that has delivered their facial physiology and recognize that their, their resting face may not represent who they are inside. But I guess conversely, mm. sometimes it does. 
So in business, when you're, when you're reading the room, which is so critical as a leader, what can yes. you do in that moment to understand the truth that lies behind the expression, whether it is representative of or a veneer? Great, great question. Uh, yeah, the the video is uh, that's on YouTube is called How to Read Faces. And it, and it talks about that exactly that the example I give in the video is that if you look at my face, I am often described as having resting a hole face um, <laughs> that I you know, I look aggressive. And, you know, I look like, you know, I used to be a boxer, and I look like I still do I don't. Um, whereas my wife has this warm and wonderfully open face. And everybody talks about how kind she looks and all that stuff. Um, but she grew up in a family where, you know, her father was a minister, they were in the, in the faith and all the rest of it. And they were told you will smile and mm -hmm. they smiled through being beaten. I mean, and I'm not using that in the vernacular. I mean, literally mm -hmm. been beaten and they would smile through the whole thing. So the whole bloody family looks like they're advertising Colgate, you know, they're all doing smiles in my family. There was a lot of violence and crime and addiction and all those kinds of things. And I spent a lot of my time as a little kid, terrified, mm. just terrified, uh, but nobody was monitoring it. So that terror ended up on my face. My wife's uh, suggestion of the family was to smile. So that ended up on her face. When we walk into a room, we have to, you know, which even trained that we, we judge a book by its cover. Mm -hmm. And the thing I would ask you to do is to walk in the room and ignore the cover. And what I say by that is you've got to develop a series of questions that reveal the person to you rather than looking at the face. Because when I walk into a room, guess who I, I'll just tell you this, guess who I'm attracted to? The person I want to talk to first when I walk into a room of uh, executives. And let's say I don't know who's who or what they do. I walk into the room. I'm attracted to the person who looks the most aggressive. Right. I, I want to go talk to that person because I know 99% of the time, that's nothing more than a facade. Mm -hmm. That's nothing more than a facade. And what's more, they may still be very aggressive because that facade may have spilled over into personality, but I know that's not who they are. In fact, many of the men that I work with, I work with men and women, but many of the men I work with, I'll often say my clients, they're yin males. Mm -hmm. What that means is we're yin inside of a yang body. We look yang. We look like we look like men's men. You know, we look like we drink beer and fight on Saturday nights. But we're all heart. We're all soul. We're all, you know, we're deeply connected. We, we care about things that other people wouldn't think we care about. And we don't necessarily talk about it with everybody because we don't know what is safe. Yes. So these guys are often guarded because they're protecting that softness within themselves. And oftentimes the person who is soft is the other way. The person who looks kind and soft is like, Ooh, okay, let's pay attention there because that could be a cover too. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's, it's just developing this willingness again, stay curious, the willingness to be curious about somebody beyond that facade. We love to jump to conclusions. Our brain works that way. You know, we've all heard the new age thing. Don't be so judgmental. Shut up. We're all judgmental. You can't help it. That's trained into you. It's how you survive. Yeah. It's not about whether you're judgmental. It's about what you do with it. So my brain goes, oh, he looks like an a-hole. Okay, that's my judgment. I see that. That's all right. But what if he's not? She looks like she's very kind or he looks like he's very kind. But what if they're not? And it's not that it's not that they're not. It's like, what if? Let me let me discover. Let me find out. Being willing to go beyond my first my first impression. 
So, so part of that, I guess, for the individual is to find their authenticity as a leader. And, and you've, um, you discussed that frequently in your work. And you suggested authentic leadership is about extracting, I think you say this in your book, extracting the most out of a person's strengths and recognizing and trading off their weaknesses. And I wondered whether you could dig a little bit deeper into that for me to explain how you extract your strengths by trading off your weaknesses. So the thing is that you've, you, I, we, you know, we're told certain things are strengths and we're told that certain things are weaknesses. But in, in our work that we do with leaders is, you know, sort of a byline is to bring home the disenfranchised parts of yourself. Mm -hmm. So what that means is this. In order for you to become as successful as you've become, I salute that. I recognize that. I honor that. And I know that you didn't get there easy. Even if you, even if you grew up in a multi-generational uh, family of wealth, I work with lots of those people, and, and people go, yeah, but it's easy for them. They inherited a million bucks, or they inherited 50 million or a billion. And I go, yeah, that's not easy. That's not an easy path. Okay, so we look at that and we go, for you to be successful, you had to hone certain skills. You had to create certain disciplines. You got your gold medal. Great. But what did you disenfranchise in order to be that? Mm -hmm. And that's so you've now made those things your weakness. And so what I say to, to my clients is this, we were looking, we're looking to bring home the disenfranchised parts of yourself. And they go, well, if I do that, will I lose my focus? And the answer is yes, briefly, briefly. And they go, what do you mean? Because you can't be focused on those things. Mm -hmm. You have to focus on something else. But it's brief. And they go, what do you mean? I said, because if you imagine that you've already trained your brain to be really successful using the skills you've got, a lot of that can run on automatic now because the neural pathways are there. Mm -hmm. But if we go looking for the parts of yourself that you disenfranchise and bring those in, it doesn't take anything away. It adds. So I'll say to my clients, you know, I know that you brought me in to help you be more successful, but that won't be my focus. And they go, well, why are we working together? My job is to bring home the disenfranchised part of yourself because when you're, when you're focused on being successful, that is um, like looking uh, in a laser beam where you know, you're, you're a sniper and you're looking down that shot and everything else disappears except for where you're going to shoot. And you're, you're a magnificent marks person. You hit the target every time. Fantastic. What we're doing is look, that's, that, that laser's still there, but we want to look down the microscope Mm -hmm. to a world that is so microscopic that when it opens up, you're like, holy crap, I didn't know this existed. That adds to the focus. It adds to it. But instead of now just becoming successful, you become fulfilled, you become engaged, you become connected in ways you never were. That's the things that you thought were your weaknesses are actually your strengths. So how powerful are you? You're great. What if you brought home that part of yourself that your dad said or your mom said or somebody said was, you can't do that. You know, that, that's a wimpy thing to do. But in many ways, my artist, which is what I was as a child, my artist has saved my life many, many times because it allows me to, it's not about painting. It allows me to see things in a creative way that I wouldn't normally see. Yeah. It allows me to notice things that I wouldn't normally notice if I'm stuck inside of my um cerebral cortex but if i'm in my creative part i can go wow i noticed and people go how did you know that i go it's right there i can see it yeah and they go, how 
that's the artist. It's the disenfranchised part of myself that I brought back. Even though I'm not painting, I'm using those same skills. That's why it's powerful. So if we bring our disenfranchised characteristics, skills, abilities back home, and if we build ourselves to a more authentic uh, version of ourselves, and we take that into mm -hmm. work, a, a guest I had on the show a few weeks ago, Owen Eastwood, he's a high-performance coach, and he quoted a stat that said 70% of our behavior is, is as a result of our environment. That's yep. we reflect reflects our environment. So if Absolutely. we bring all bring our authentic selves to work, but we are in an inauthentic environment, and we still have imposter syndrome tapping ourselves on the shoulder as well, which is natural and part of our part of our lives, how do we fight against an inauthentic environment and imposter syndrome with our new authentic selves? What do we what do we do? Because it takes a huge amount of courage to be yourself in that situation. Again, great question. So th there's two pieces there, which is one is environment and the other one is imposter syndrome. So I'll attack imposter syndrome first. Um, I haven't met anybody yet who had it, such a severe case of imposter syndrome as I did <laughs> for years, years and years and years. Um, and then one day I realized through a lot of um, work with my emotional source code that where it started. So I'll give you my quick story and then I'll tell you how it worked. Mm -hmm. um, is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So when I was seven years old, I came down the stairs into this narrow hallway in this ghetto house. Um, and the front door was open. It was summertime. And there was a, a body that was blocking the light. I couldn't see who it was, but I knew who it was. And I could see my dad moving towards the going out. And I just, I guess, intuitively knew something was wrong and said, dad, dad. And he came back and he walked back down the hallway to me. He kneeled down. He ruffled my hair, touched me on one shoulder and put his hand on the other shoulder, almost like knighting. And he said, I'm going now, son. You're the man of the house. I'm seven, you asshole. I'm seven. This is not the time to become the man of the house. And in that moment, he stole my childhood mm -hmm. because my mom was severely depressed. I had younger siblings and suddenly I'm feeling this incredible responsibility for all of these individuals. Well, that's about as imposter as you can get, right? You know, I'm seven years old. I'm the man of the house. And I took over. I did that. I exactly. But I never felt like I was capable. Yes. But here's what I realized that my imposter syndrome was the driving force of me being good at things. Wait, because when I embraced, oh, I have imposter syndrome, that's a part of me that wants to be really good at something. It's not because I'm a failure. It's not because I'm pretending. It's because I am not willing to be satisfied with the status quo of my own or of the thing I'm going into. Mm -hmm. I have to prove myself, and that makes me aspire to greater levels. So I embrace imposter syndrome. I recognize that it's a driving force in my life. That's an example of shifting the, the emotional source code into a positive way and understanding, yeah, I can, yeah, okay, imposter syndrome isn't going away. All right, good. Now, what is it really? What is the outcome it brings me? Well, it brings me misery. Yeah, looking at it in that framework it does, but what does it really bring me? It brings me an aspiration to never do things by half, to make sure that I really understand what I'm talking about, to make sure because – 
part of imposter syndrome is being afraid of being found out. Being afraid out, af afraid of being found out, isn't afraid of being humiliated, which is being banished from the tribe. Okay, so okay, I get that. Now let's turn that into the positive. Yeah, let's get really good at this. Let's really understand this. Let's dive deep into this. So if you've got imposter syndrome as you're listening to this, take it on from that place. That's the part that's driving you to be the best of the best in anything you do, anything you do, right? So Pete Townsend talked about before he would go on stage, 25 years into his career would throw up mm -hmm. out of nerves. Well, you know, it's Pete Townsend, you schmuck. I mean, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a guitarist with the Who. He's like, is there anybody more famous? Didn't matter that imposter syndrome. And he said, once I vomited, I knew I was going to play extraordinarily well. And he talked about a time in an interview I saw with him uh, in the Rolling Stone years ago. And he said, I had a time when I didn't throw up. I don't know why, because I didn't get nervous. He goes, it was my worst gig ever. So he's got a neural pathway now that says that this process makes him play well. It doesn't matter whether it's true. It's true for him. It's his emotional source code. It's his emotional logic. So that's how we start attacking imposter syndrome. Then you have your environment. You want to go into that? I was just going to, I was just going to ask, does that mean that imposter syndrome, if it becomes a driver and a trigger to, to, to do better, to perform better, that it must always be the road and never the destination? It's never the destination. <laughs> See, the interesting thing about uh, my clients who understand their own emotional source code and even their organizations is um, where they're operating from is a place of mastery. Mm -hmm. So people don't really understand what I mean by that. So I just want to explain. Um, I want to master my craft and I understand that that is impossible because my craft like me is always evolving. Yes. So therefore I'm always on that journey. And people go, oh, you know, when will we be when will I be there? <laughs> right? You know, well, you seven in the back of the bus. Like, what what is this? Like, so the idea is to once you embrace mastery, now you're enjoying the journey. Because we live our lives and we're conditioned for it, social media, etc. I'm not blaming social for it, but as part of it, is I'll be happy when. I'll be happy when. Okay, you'll be happy when. When you, when you make it, when you get there, you know, think about it. When you're a kid, I'll be happy when, I, uh, when you can't tell me what to do and mm -hmm. I can leave home. I'll get my own apartment. You get your own apartment, you're going to be happy when I can pay the rent because well, I haven't got a job yet. You get a job, you'll be happy when I get a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Oh, great. So now you're a girlfriend or boyfriend. I'll be happy when we actually have sex. I'll be happy when we, when we get engaged. I'll be happy when we get married. I'll be happy when we buy a house. Happy when we have kids. Happy when the kids go to college. Happy when these kids stop getting out of our freaking hair and we can just get some time on our own. I'll be happy when I'm dead. You know, I mean, it's, it's always delayed. Yeah. As opposed to mastery, which is I'm really present with this moment. How can I be better? How, mm -hmm. And not better as in to the world. You, that, that, comes, that goes out of the equation entirely because that's still destination. It's internal. Self-esteem is external. It's what the world tells you about you. Self-worth is internal. It's what you know about yourself with certainty. Right? It's what I know about myself. And there's no arrogance in it. Mm -hmm. it, it can, for people who don't understand, it can sound arrogant, but there's no arrogance in it. We live in a world, uh, particularly in the Judeo-Christian system, where we live in a world of humble. You're supposed to be humble. 
Well, hold on a second. Do you know what that means? Yes. You're not supposed to brag. No, that's not what it means. Really? Okay. What does it mean? The word humble comes from the Aramaic, right? The, the original comes from the Aramaic and the Aramaic, it means God first. That's mm -hmm. what humble means. And people go, well, okay. What, how does that play out? Like this. Ask me, am I good at what I do? Ask me, Paul. Are you good at what you do? I'm the best in the world. Right. Is that, is that arrogant or is that humble? You might say, well, that's arrogant. No, it's not. And then you go, well, even that saying it's not is arrogant. No, no. Let me explain why it's not arrogant. It's because it's not me. I get out of the way. Yes. I stay deeply curious. I connect to that part of me that is connected to the infinite intelligence of the universe. You can call it God if you want. Um, I don't call it that, but you can call it that. It's fine. I connect to that. And I, the ego gets out of the way. But if I, the ego, say I'm the best in the world, yeah, that's ego. So it's vastly different. And by the way, when I have tried to be that, yeah, I'm an arrogant whole. I don't like myself. I don't like how I behave. And I'm not learning because my curiosity cannot live in that space. Hmm. My curiosity can only live in the open space of where I get out of the way. Right? So it's, there's no arrogance in it. It's actually coming from a place of deep love and wanting to serve that I want to be better. Again, that's that, that, that's the... The not only the curiosity, but the imposter syndrome want to be better so I can serve at a higher and higher and higher level, whether that's a nation or an individual. One of the words you used early in that answer was present, and there's a huge dialogue in leadership circles around being super present for leaders and so mm -hmm. on. And I often struggle with the concept of being both super present, but also having enough stretch to look at the vision for the future. And how do we, yep. how do we balance those two things? If we're too super present and we can't always see what's coming, I'd love to get your, your view on how leaders who are often told to be super present, how they manage those two seemingly conflicting elements. Uh, it's a great question. Um, and for me, they're not conflicting at all because present is being with uh, the thing I am doing at the moment. Mm -hmm. So being present with you, Paul, not thinking about, oh, what I'm going to have for lunch or not thinking about, oh my God, I wonder if the wife's upset with me or, you know, whatever it might be, or what decision I have to make on Tuesday, but rather being present with. Mm -hmm. That's what present means, being present with, being, being completely, totally available right now. There is nothing else in my world right now. My clients are always go, I don't know how you do it. Right? I, when I'm with them, nothing else in the world exists. I don't think about anything else. I'm not going anywhere else. I'm there with them, with their organization or whatever it might be. That's being present. Mm -hmm. However, I can also be entirely present with going, where does this path take us? That is now looking outside of this moment, but using the moment as the springboard to say, okay, so where does this take us? Yeah. If this is who we really are, if this is truly our purpose, if this is the work we've done, we found the emotional source code of the group, uh, of the organization, and we go, okay, this is our purpose. Let's be really present with that. What is that? Where does that take us moving forward in one year, two years, 20 years? Let's be present with that. Now, let's imagine that we're, and so just think about this right now. Whatever your purpose is, maybe you know it, maybe you don't, but let's say you do. I want you to imagine yourself knowing that you fulfilled that purpose, okay? And I want you to imagine yourself standing 
looking so you're in the future 20 years 10 years five years whatever you decide mm -hmm. in the future you're there and you're living fully in your purpose what's going on in your business i want you to be fully present in the future looking at the way your business is running looking at the way your organization runs looking at what has changed and how it's clarified on how you are being in that business totally present five years 10 years 20 years from now now, as you do that, I want you to stand in the future and look back on the present. So the present is now your past. Mm -hmm. So you're standing in the future looking, looking into the past, which is your personal present. And as you stand in the future looking back on your present, you are able to see the milestones that you were able to hit by being present and by always operating from the truth of your source code that was there to serve the world that was there to serve your audience, that was there to serve your purpose. And as you stand in that place, what about those times do you feel most proud of? What about those times do you feel like you served the world in a magnificent way? What about those times as you look at them, do you realize there was mistakes along the way that actually were there to guide you back to your path because you let your head get in the way or you let your ideals get in the way or you let the, the opinions of others get in the way? So now as you stand in the future, looking back, on the past, which is today's present, looking at all those milestones which are ahead of you today and looking back from the future and you imagine all of those things that you're proud of and you recognize that you're course corrected, you realize that you're completely present in the present, in the future, and you can look back. That's a, such a fantastic explanation. Thank you. That's a brilliant explanation. Um, we were going to touch on environment before I interrupted you. Yeah, I'd love you to okay. love you to explain a bit about that as well. Yeah, environment is is for me is an amazing thing. Um, I learned about the psychology of environment on Hay Street in Perth, Western Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where I learned about it. I was living in Perth and I was trained to be a psychotherapist, Jungian psychotherapist, and. Um, my teacher was a man called Bishop William Todd. He was an Orthodox Catholic bishop, and he was a psychotherapist, young mm. therapist. And we were out for a coffee, and we went for a walk on Hay Street. Um, Hay Street, for those who don't know, is a street that doesn't have traffic on it. It's a mall. And we were walking through that area, and we were watching these kids. You know, So we're talking about very early 80s, watching these kids who were street kids out there, you know, and, and you know, they're looking a bit rough. And William was this amazing human being who would connect with people. So he starts to connect with his kids. And I'm just observing and watching. And after a little while, we set up, we decided, William and I, that we'd create a program to help these kids. We want, so every Friday night, I would go out there and, or Saturday night, I would go out there and I would hang out with these kids. And I just hang out. And of course, they didn't like it. But they, and I would never approach them. I just sit there. And, and eventually, they came to me and they came and talked to me. And, I, you know, and through that, I was able to filter who was who. What was going on you know again not ignoring the, the the cover of the books and finding out what was inside and every now and then i found uh, we found a few that were just amazing human beings but mm -hmm. gone through hell to live there I'm like okay and so we set this program around leadership like what does it mean to lead yourself what is it and how what's the impact of that three of these lads we worked with actually three guys and one girl we worked with they were fantastic like the brightest of the bright and uh, we tried to help them out financially a little bit and give them a bit better start. And within six months, they were back on the street and they were smarter than they'd been before. Mm -hmm. 
what happened? I'll tell you what happened. That they used the skills in the environment they were in. Yep. If you put somebody in an environment, they will respond to the environment. However, there is a counter to this um, at a business level. What we know is if you don't create a community that is rock solid inside of your business, if you don't say create a culture that is rock solid and you put somebody bad in it, they are the ones who are going to impact everybody else mm. because everybody's waiting for permission to behave badly. And so my analogy, it's a little graphic, forgive me. I'll, I will try to keep it reasonably clean. But my analogy is this. You live in the woods, you have a nice, beautiful cabin, and you collect rainwater, which you drink from. But your friend thinks it's really funny, so they come over and they drop a turd into the water barrel. It's only one turd. It's just one turd. Can you drink the water? No. The answer is no. One turd in a barrel will poison the entire barrel. That's the same in your culture. And here's the news. If you're listening to this and you're a CEO or you're a, you know, your HR or whatever it is, and you go, yeah, but Johnny or Susie is, you know, they're just a top performer. Yeah. They're kind of douchey and they bring everybody down, but they're a top performer. And that's why we can't get rid of them. And I'm saying that's the turd in your barrel. Mm. And here's the thing. They're poisoning everybody. If you don't get rid of them, you're sending a message that this behavior is okay. And what's more, everybody is underperforming. So whatever they're performing at, that will be made up very quickly without even replacing them by the upsurge in everybody's attitude when they're gone. So the environment is incredibly important. You have to design a community, not, a, not just the environment, a community. In my book, um, Fiercely Loyal, I talked about one of the three C's being community. And what I say to everybody now is that's number one now. Since the pandemic, that's number one. Mm -hmm. go, what do you mean? Don't create a business and then a community around it. Create a community and insert your business into it. People have got to have a place together. People have got to have a way to come together. That is what matters. And that's why you're seeing part of the great resignation. People are going, I don't have any community. I'm out. Yeah. I'm going somewhere where I've got community. So when we look at the great resignation and coming out of the pandemic, what are the core characteristics that we need from leaders to guide us into the digital age? How do they differ from the characteristics that have got us to this point from a leadership perspective? And do you think the, the pandemic has reinforced the need for new characteristics or redefined what those characteristics need to be? Yeah, I think it's definitely reinforced and redefined. Um, and I think that most people are not particularly clear on it yet. Yeah. But, but let's, let, let's, let's examine some of it. So let's look at the the reality of it, because as you know, I'm involved in a lot of different futurist groups and looking at what trends and stuff. So one of the things that is very clear is we are entering into a completely different business age. So let's look at some of the key factors in that. Number one, let's look at cryptocurrency and blockchain, blockchain mm -hmm. technology. Now, I'll be the first to say, I don't know anything about it. Um, I mean, I do, but I don't know much, certainly not. I wouldn't consider myself anything resembling an expert, but I can see the writing on the wall and many of the top futurists and economic people I would speak with say the same. Blockchain is going to change the world. It's going to decentralize uh, the banking. Okay, so that's number one. We've got blockchain technology. Then we've got NFTs. What the hell is an NFT? What the hell is a non-fungible token? It doesn't even make sense. 
No, it doesn't, but it's going to change everything. It will change the, the streaming platforms. So you think Netflix is so woohoo compared to CBS or cable or whatever it was you had before. Netflix is, is now looking at how they're going to be confronted in a massive way by NFTs mm -hmm. because people will own their own projects. So the music industry is going to change again. It got a hammering in the, in the early, early 2000s. It's going to get hammered again. NFTs is going to take over that. NFTs is taking over everything. All my work, all my IPs will become NFTs. So that's going to change. So people will own what their, their, their value of their creativity. That, and then the third thing is the metaverse. Now, people go, you know, I don't get this metaverse thing. And like, you know, so, uh, you know, Facebook has changed its name to Meta. And what does all that mean? Well, it, depending on your age, I'm too old for it, but um, you may have kids. And when I say kids, meaning that they are 30 or 40 years old, who played games like Farmville on mm -hmm. Facebook. And these were games where you bought digital chickens or, you know, digital cows and you built a farm. Or you were in The Sims, you played that game, the simulation game, where you built towns and cities and all the rest of it. And you paid money in this world to have things in that world. Mm -hmm. That is the metaverse. So in case you don't know, you probably don't, most people don't, Adidas just bought an island in the metaverse. Right. Adidas bought an island in the metaverse. That's how real it is. So people are going to start buying real estate in the metaverse rather than in the physical universe that we live in. And at that point, well, maybe, uh, maybe the matrix becomes a documentary <laughs> rather than an entertainment movie. <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh, here's Jocko. Um, so when you look at those three major technologies, then you look at, then you look at the shifting uh, powers in the world. So the GDP and the power of China is far greater than anybody ever expected. Anybody ever expected. They produce almost one third of everything that's produced in the world is produced by China. They have a massive GDP. They're doing all kinds of things. They've risen more people out of poverty than any nation has ever done. Now, do I want to be under Chinese rule? No, I don't. But I, I can see the writing on that wall. So we've got that piece of it as well. Then we've, got the, then we've got the great resignation, which is people walking away from their jobs. 25 million, you know, in a, in a first year. And people go, well, yeah, but that's America or that's Britain or that's Australia because they're first world countries. Nope. That's Vietnam and China, both communist countries. People are going, yeah, I'm not going to work. What? You can't do that. Yeah, you can. So that's happening. So there's all these shifting powers that are happening. Then you've got climate change. Um, and what you're going to have with climate change is mass migrations. You know, we saw the Syrian mass migration and all the problems that caused. Well, that's going to be nothing compared to what you're going to see as these lands get washed away. People, they, they can't hang. You can't say we well, can't go back to your own country. I don't have a country. It's underwater, right? A lot of those countries are just going to disappear. So you've got that. doesn't matter whether you say it was humans or whatever it is. doesn't matter. The fact is there's climate change. That's going to change. So now you've got mass migration. You've got climate change. You've got uh, the economies of the world is changing. The fiscal system of the world is changing. You've got the value system changing with NFTs and blockchain for securing things. Now tell me you can lead the way you did in the 80s. <laughs>
And I will yes. tell you, you are a donkey. I'm yeah. sorry. You know, I don't mean to be rude, but you're a donkey. You don't deserve a leadership position because you're thinking that things can be done the way they were done. Things have always changed. We always know that. You, know, you, can't, you can't look forward by looking back. I understand that. But you got to understand these changes are going to make everything just look like nothing. Yes. Nothing. And if you don't have agility, so agility is the new certainty. I wrote an article on that. You'll find it on, the, on my, uh, on my uh, publication on Medium. Um, agility is the new certainty. If, if you don't have agility, you cannot pin anything down. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to adapt. Companies said, we could never go remote. And within 21 days, the biggest companies in the world went remote. Companies that have said yeah. it's not possible. And now they're saying, well, let's get back to normal. We want you to come in the office. You're an idiot. Stop it. You're going to get your legs smacked and you're probably going to lose your business. Yeah, but we're a multi-billion dollar business. Well, you don't think any of those disappeared in 2008? And that was, that was, a, that was a fart compared to what's coming. Yeah. This is, that was nothing. So we have got to get to this understanding that we need to develop all these other skills. And the number one skill is humanity. Mm-hmm. We've got to develop the humanities. And this is, people don't understand that. We got to develop creativity. We talked about that before, yeah. the need for the artist. But we also have to create the humanity because people will walk away now. And, you know, the most undervalued job on the executive suite was HR. It was kind of a, a joke seat at the HR, at the, at the executive table. Yeah. It is the number one most important seat because you've got the great resignation. You can't keep people. My book... Fiercely Loyal, I wrote in 2015, warning about people walking away. And guess what? It ain't got any better. Mm. A lot more people need to read that book even today because we got to understand if you don't approach things from being the chief relationship officer, you're going to lose your best people. And then we got now we got hard borders that are going to start happening and you got a brain drain because, you know, all the uh, Nobel Prizes that were won by the United States in the last 20 years. Two of them were, born, were, were won by Americans who were born here. Mm. The rest were born by Peter, were American Nobel Prizes from people from Sri Lanka or somewhere that was, you know, it, that brain drain is going to be a problem. Yeah. So, Dove, we, we, um, as we get to sort of the end of the podcast, I, you stated the beginning of this um, conversation, and I read it in your literature as well. You said, my entire life's work has been driven by a single question. Why do people do what they do, even when what they do doesn't make sense? So I guess my final question before we get right to the end is, do you have an answer for this yet? Yeah, absolutely. What a, and the answer is that because we all have an emotional source code. Yeah. And the emotional source code is our emotional logic. If you want to understand the emotional logic, um, it's the best way I can explain it is this, that you have an executive functioning part of your brain prefrontal cortex is up here. It's the last part of our brains to evolutionarily develop. Um, and that is about, oh, I can't remember the numbers now, but it's about 2 million times slower than the rest of your brain, which is reactive. Your limbic system is reactive. Your limbic system is, is doing things to keep you alive and protect you. So the things you do that you go, well, I don't know why I did that is so stupid. You did it because you were trying to survive in the moment. Now, there was no saber-toothed tiger, but today's saber-toothed tiger might be debt. Yep. Right? 
So you go, the saber-toothed tiger could eat me. What is the saber-toothed tiger today? It's debt. Oh, okay. So I'm now behaving in a way that doesn't make any sense, but I'm afraid of the saber-toothed tiger, which is debt, or I'm afraid of the saber-toothed tiger, which is something else. So when we understand that it's the protective mechanism of the brain, the limbic system, then we start understanding that it's not logical. So in logic, two plus two is what? Four, of course it is. We all know that, right? But in emotional logic, two plus two could be a giraffe. <laughs> two plus two could be a chair. Two, but more likely, two plus two is rage. Two plus two is fear. It's, it's a very primal emotion. Mm -hmm. So that, that, there's no precognitive thinking to that. It's reactive thinking. And that's why we'll look back at the decision and go, why did I do that? because you weren't thinking it's got nothing to do with thinking it's reacting and only by understanding those neural pathways by understanding what's your source code now you get it i had a conversation with a friend of mine last night and she is just a wonderful human being i mean she's one of my favorite people she's awesome she's bright she's beautiful she's intelligent she had a wicked sense of humor and she dates the biggest knobs in the world i mean just <clears throat> I mean, she dates idiots who treat her awfully. And I, you know, we, and I've had lots of conversations with her and she said, help me with my source code around this. So, okay. I said, who do you have a bond with? Who do you really have a bond with? She goes, I said, are there many people? She goes, no, there's only really one. Now this is a woman who's in her fifties. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, who is it? She goes, it's my mom. Now I've known this person for a long time. So I know the history. And I said, your mom who abandoned you when you were 15? She goes, yeah. You have a real bond with her, right? She goes, yeah. And I go, okay, so who are you dating? And she goes, what do you mean? So she goes through these guys. And I said, the only person you have a bond with is the person who abandoned you. So who are you having relationships with? People who abandon you. That's what you're doing. And you tell them, you're, and she says, but I know my mom loves me. And I said, how do you know that? It's my famous question. How do you know you were loved as a child? Mm -hmm. People go, oh, well, my mom cuddled me. I don't know that that means you were loved. And the way she knew her mom loved her as a child was her mom wanted her to be her. Her mom wanted her to go and work at the same company she worked at, get the gold watch and marry the, the, the bad guy and do all those things. So consequently, she pursues bad guys just like her mother did. She pursues guys who will abandon her just like her mother did and like her mother's husband, uh, her mother's husband did, her father did. That's the source code. I said, yeah. what are you actually looking for? What do you actually want? You know it doesn't make She goes, but I got that insight from you 10 years ago. And I go, I know the insight doesn't matter. I don't care about aha moments. Aha moments are a waste of time. They're bragging rights. You get to say, oh, my God, I got it. And you get to tell all your friends. And then you get to repeat the same crap you did the week before. Aha moments don't matter. As you're listening to this right now, I want you to get, I don't care. And you shouldn't care about aha moments. What you need to care about is effort moments. Effort. I'm not doing this anymore. F it, I will not tolerate this anymore. There's a decision to be made that I am going to do a different behavior. She said, well, what do I really want? I said, you want to prove that you can find somebody who won't abandon you, but you pick people who will. That's your emotional source code around this. 
I said, if you find somebody who won't abandon you, you'll abandon them. How do I know? Because I know the person you dated who was a good person. So in a, as a society where we, so much of our external stimuli is based on reactionary or irrational. Mm -hmm. If we look at social media, mm -hmm. so much of it is instant gratification. It's irrational, reactionary. Do we have the capacity en masse to rationally and insightfully get closer to our emotional source code? Are we in the right societal or cultural environment that is conducive to that? So you're asking, can we wave the magic wand? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I wish we could. Um, I don't know about societally, but I do know that, um, you know, I've, I've often said that I believe that curiosity is the cure for the world, <clears throat> mm -hmm. right? Because it's not about being right or being wrong. So we become curious about ourselves. We become curious about our, our lovers, our partners, our children, our families. Um, we become curious about each other. We become curious about nations. We become curious about our customers. Um, and I think that that is what changes the environment. Everything is based now on, on being black, white, right, wrong, of, offended. You know, um, if you're focused on being offended, then you don't have time to be curious and you don't have time uh, to be playful. Um, you know, the, one of the things that I guide my clients around all the time is uh, we live in a world today that is context void. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't pay attention to context. We, we pay attention to content. Yep. So, you know, uh, this person said this 10 years ago, no context, but we've got to cancel them now. Well, what was the context? Well, this is a bloody comedian, right? Comedians job is to push the edge. That's their job. Any artist's job is to push the edge. We need to embrace context and we can't get to context without curiosity. And that's why I honestly believe that curiosity will change the world. And it's, uh, with that, I can say, well, yeah, I've got judgments. Of course I have, because I'm human. But what if I got curious even about my judgments? Mm. What if I decided that, I could, that my curiosity could lead me to a state of deep empathy and compassion? Not made-up empathy that you think you're supposed to have because you read somebody's book and you know that that's what you're supposed to have as a leader. God. Um, but really genuine empathy, which is first and foremost to listen yeah right and to actually go okay and and then to say i don't understand tell me why that was and what was it about that and taking the what i say five levels of curiosity go deeper and deeper and deeper with that person not from any judgment but from a place of just wanting to understand and that person's walls will come down so the environment changes we be we create this world where we facilitate the empathy, the compassion, and the self-knowledge, which you're talking about, the courage to facilitate the self-knowledge through curiosity. And that's what changes everything. Just as we finish, I want to just say that, you know, I, as you know, Paul, I, I spoke at the UN, and I was asked to speak on, on the radicalization of America. And I spoke with an ex-neo-Nazi who is a very good friend of mine, and he was the chief recruiter. And when I was asked, how could you possibly work with this guy? I was asked actually by the, uh, a Muslim woman who was uh, leading the panel. And she said to me, how could you help? How could you, somebody born Jewish, help somebody who was a neo-Nazi who wanted to wipe out your race? I said, I didn't see a neo-Nazi. She says, what do you mean? I said, uh, I just saw myself. And she goes, you were a neo-Nazi? Of course not. 
She says, I don't understand. I said, what I saw was a highly articulate, intelligent, creative human being who didn't have a place to belong. I was that man in my 20s. Of course, he went there in his 15, when he was 15, 16 years old. He didn't feel like he needed a place to belong. And we all need a place to belong. And if we don't belong, we'll trade that for fitting in. And there's a vast difference, but we don't get it until we're in it. So that's what I saw. And my connection, my willingness to be curious about him allowed all those things to disappear, the neo-Nazi piece and all the rest of it. And now he travels the world and speaks at Holocaust museums and, and, and speaks in synagogues and makes a massive difference and actually helps to de-radicalize kids who are in that environment because he now looks at them from a place of not shame, which he was in, but he looks at them in a place of that they're just looking for a place to, to fit in or looking for a place to belong. So he approaches them with curiosity, compassion, and empathy. What would happen if you did that in your business? What would happen if you did that with your executive team? What would happen if you did that in your politics? Everything would change. Dove, that has been a sensational 60 minutes. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Paul, for inviting me. It's, it genuinely was a pleasure and an honor. And for anybody out there, I, I want them to know you can reach out to me. Just go to dovebaron.com. There's a way to connect with me directly. It gives you my direct email. Um, because I'm here on the planet to serve. Thank you so much for your time today, Dove. A real pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. And if you've enjoyed the conversation with Dove today, please do take a moment to rate us or review us. We genuinely appreciate it, and it all helps with our ratings and our rankings. And if you'd like to join the new PL movement for more principled leadership and more purpose-led business, then just go to principlesandleadership.com and subscribe. So finally, I'm Paul, host of the new PL. Thank you once again for listening and have a great day.